All right, welcome to Legal Tech Week for uh, April 2nd of 2021. Uh, this is the program in which we talk about the week's top stories in legal tech and innovation. I am Bob Ambrogi. I have the blog Law Sites and the podcast Law Next. And uh, I feel like it's almost redundant for us to, to keep introducing ourselves, but we'll do it anyway, because why not? People, sh people should know who we are. So uh, going from my upper left, I don't know how you see it. Molly, that would be you. Hi, I'm Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist uh, based in the Chicago area and uh, I'm former editor and publisher of the ABA Journal. And Nikki? I am Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software and I am a legal tech journalist and I write regular columns for the ABA Journal above the law the Daily Record, um, which is a legal newspaper here in Rochester that's syndicated nationally. And um, I also write weekly posts for the MyCase blog. All right. And Victor, who is here to speak officially on behalf of the ABA, right? Uh, yeah, sure. The American, <laughs> American Basketball Association. We, we have a three-pointer. We have a red, white, and blue ball. It's going to be awesome. It's going to put the NBA out of business. Um, now, my name is Victor Lee. I'm, a, I'm associate managing editor for the um, assistant managing editor, sorry, of the ABA Journal. I, um, I uh, manage the business of law and technology section. Joe Patrice. Uh, you know, it's so sad this wasn't on uh, April Fool's Day because I could have come up with some long bio that wasn't true. But I'm Joe Patrice. I'm the uh, senior editor at Above the Law. I work on the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. Um, I you know, just generally talk about tech and these days bonuses. So uh, if you're looking for how much people are pay getting paid at law firms, that's, uh, that's what I'm doing day in, day out. Yeah. Do you remember when we all used to do, do people do that anymore? We used to do April Fool's blog posts and all that. That used to be a thing. Yeah. Our, do... our, our editorial mission has always been to pretend that it doesn't exist. Ellie <laughs> Mistal always hated it. He thought that it was the worst day on the internet. Uh, because people would send us back then would send us lies as tips and you had to parse through whether it was happening or not. He hated the whole thing. So we, we took the bold stance that it did not exist. Yeah. There, there was one year when I, I, I got a lot of crap from people. I don't think I ever did it again, but I, I posted, I, I said, I pretended I had a guest post from a Barack Obama. And for some reason, everybody thought it was actually Barack Obama guest posting on law sites blog. And I was like, yeah, right. Uh, okay. <laughs> I got a bridge in Brooklyn. I'll sell you too. Uh, Steve. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was, I was looking at the squares thinking I wasn't next. Sorry. <laughs> well, I guess, uh, yeah. Steve Embry, we all see the squares in a different order here. Yeah, I guess that's right. Uh, I write the blog tech fall crossroads about uh, legal innovation, uh, legal technology and various and sundry things. I, practiced law for a good number of years before that. And uh, I'm also um, vice chair of the ABA law practice division and any opinions that I announce are strictly mine and not theirs <laughs> or something last, like that. <laughs> okay. Last but not least, Victoria. Hey everyone. My name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter with Legal Tech News where I cover cybersecurity and the legal tech industry. All right. And I don't uh, want to buy a, a bridge in Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I guess that I didn't know. I didn't hear from Zach. I guess he's not here. Caroline, uh, apparently it's a holiday in the UK. I didn't know that. 
Uh, so she's not here today. Uh, Joe, you haven't been around Zach, for a, yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't. I'm excited. I did see that Zach said he wasn't going to be here uh, oh, okay. somewhere in the in the mix. I, I, I haven't been. I've, uh, I'm super happy to be back. I assume that we solved all the problems with legal technology for the, you know, over the last couple of weeks. So I just want to get caught up on the, are, you, are we down to the final four yet? We are, we are in the final four. Um, it is the cat filter. Uh, so yes, we're, this is the above the law epic zoom fail bracket where you can vote for what the most epic zoom fail of the legal year was. Uh, the cat filter is obviously the one seed and has rocketed all the way to the final four. Uh, the two seed meanwhile is Jeffrey Tubin's um, um, fall from grace, uh, shall we say? Uh, it is the it's the two seed. Uh, it also has been uh, it, it had a rough go in the first few rounds, but it's now uh, now coming along. Uh, we're gonna see some real uh, some real barn burners this time around. So be sure to get your vote in. And when does it, when is it uh, when do we get down to the? I believe that's actually what I'm looking up now because <laughs> I feel as though I didn't. Uh, didn't memorize this. I think it's Monday, but let me make sure. Final four square off. Yes, Monday, April 5th. Uh, it'll be uh, still not a cat versus um, the the Peru case where there was a uh, guy having a lawyer having sex on video during a drug lord's uh, trial. And then Tubin is taking on that, that actually more serious story, the scary story of the abuser who was in the room with the witness at the same time and an eagle-eyed prosecutor managed to catch them. Um, and yeah, keep your voting April 5th. And then we'll, uh, that night will be the actual uh, men's tournament final. And then we'll, uh, vote for the rest over the rest of the week for the final of our zoom one keep the party going you know awesome uh so while we have you do you want to talk okay. about your pick of the week here yeah so i actually this is a story that i've written but have not published yet because um i think five firms have announced their bonuses today so it's taking up our whole editorial calendar but uh interesting buried in the stories of people getting new bonuses and all are some stories we've been talking about people working from home for a year. We've talked about the legal technology rising to the occasion and lawyers becoming more comfortable with it. Uh, and we've talked about, I, I, I think Steve had the story, uh, that Cushman story about how new leases as they're coming up, corporate, just generally commercial real estate is shedding office space, uh, getting rid of square footage because they feel they don't need it in the modern era. And we've started hearing cryptic saying they're considering it. No one has actually announced a plan, but I have heard from people at two big law firms that their leadership has said that they're looking into creating a model that does not require you to come into a five-day in-office work week anymore. Uh, they're talking about institutionalizing basically three-day weekends. Uh, now, it's lawyers, so that's, that's really still a seven-day work week, but <laughs> ones where you can do three of the days in sweats. So uh, that it's an interesting that we've crossed this threshold, that people are actually mulling it over. That's obviously different than them actually doing it, but it suggests there's some momentum. Uh, and I think everybody, uh, those firms are not Cravath or Davis Polk or any of the ones that you would expect to be a first mover, 
But it suggests to me that they're starting to float this, hoping that one of those people that everyone feels comfortable following takes, takes action first. Yeah, I saw a story today, <clears throat> I think it was today, that Womble Carlisle, the North Carolina, is it Greensboro, mm -hmm. uh, is cutting, cutting their office space pretty substantially. And I thought it was kind of interesting because uh, I'm not terribly familiar with, with the firm, although it's a, it's a North Carolina-based firm, at least originally, and you know probably more on the conservative end. But when they were describing it, I, I thought it was kind of interesting the way they described what they wanted to do is kind of conceptually, just the office space was gonna be a place to come and collaborate and have meetings and have training sessions and sort of everything else you, you do from home, which is a different way of thinking about a legal office than, than ever before. So that is kind of an interesting, interesting take. Yeah, we're starting here. I mean, there's been a couple of companies in the uh, tech space, not legal tech space, not legal at all, but a couple of the big tech companies that have basically said, look, we're, we're never going to tell you, you have to come back in again. If you just want to work from home for the rest of the time you work for us, that's fine. And, uh, you know, why shouldn't that start to uh, drip over into legal? Of course, yeah, then there's Amazon, kind of which said <laughs> everyone must come back. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I was say, it kind of flies in the face of what we talked about a couple weeks ago when the Brooks and Grays sent around that memo saying every, we want everybody back in the office. And I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you have these big firms that have this like really fancy, expensive office space everywhere. It's just like, well, why wouldn't they want to use it? And why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they want people to come back? And especially if they want to like, you know, keep it, keep, keep tabs on people and make sure that everyone's, you know, at their desk or in their office at a certain time or whatever. It makes it easier to do that, right? So it'll be interesting to see to see who wins out or or, or if there's going to be like some kind of compromise to see like you know if there's some kind of hybrid method going forward. But yeah, I mean, it just seemed like on the one hand there is a strong there is a strong force saying okay, well let's just get back to normal and do everything the way we used to. And then on the other yeah. hand, it's kind of like well, can we? You know, and it's it's going to have enormous repercussions. <clears throat> you know, not not just because lawyers may decide not to go back downtown, but. You know, I live in, here in Louisville, you know, there's been substantial investment in downtown over the past several decades. Um, and most of the businesses that are down there, by and large, depend upon office workers for their, you know, their, their sustenance, for, you know, from lunches to retail to what have you. And, you know, those office workers are no longer there. Boy, it's... Um, it's going to be kind of strange. It's already strange here. I mean, so many downtown businesses, uh, mom and pop, uh, locally owned businesses are, are just gone. Um, yeah. And so it could be, it could have a lot of repercussions across the board that you know, we probably haven't really fully appreciated yet as a society. Yeah. Uh, Victor, this, this kind of uh, relates to the story you had uh, wanted to talk about this week. Yeah, it's just interesting because like, um, you know, one thing that, um, and, and, and this is, this is kind of like a compilation of like, you know, we, you know, we, we did like a compilation of like stories that other people had, had talked about with like, with, with regards to, you know, law firms kind of uh, going all out to try to recruit associates, which, you know, seemed kind of, you know, I mean, you talked about like some firms are trying to be, trying to really get on this virtual bandwagon and be like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to hire people, hire, hire the best people in whatever city, regardless of where they are set them up remotely and then have them have them work that way. Or, you know, we'll, we'll give out these big bonuses to, to people to, to, to entice them over to our firm, or we're gonna do this and do that. And it's just like, first of all, it's like, 
it just made me kind of wonder, like, okay, where's all this money coming from? First of all, I thought I thought we were still kind of recovering from like this, you know, from like a, you know from like a down from a down from a downturn in, in the economy. So it's kind of like, well, where's all this money coming from? And haven't we learned a lesson from like giving out these big, you know, these big guarantees in the in, in the past and kind of like you know trying to entice people to come over by giving them you know all this all this money up front and trying to and not having them really kind of prove that they're that they're worth it or that or, or making them bring in business to comp to a company with it and it's just like yeah it just seems like it's 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 i don't know if they're if, they're, if it's going to create another bubble or if it's going to do anything like that but it just seemed odd that there was all of a sudden there was like this big arms race uh for associates not even i mean the the, the, the articles talked about associates not even partners but i assume that you know it, it would apply to partners as well but yeah it's just all of a sudden you know these these firms just trying to you know trying to pick off people from other from other from other firms and you know promising them everything everything under the sky it just seems like that doesn't seem like the best way of going about doing things well, I mean, a lot, a lot of these firms have, are saying they've had one of their best years ever over the last year. So um, I don't know how that adds up, but that seems to be what they're saying. Uh, what else we got? Victoria, what do you got this week? Yeah, I read about this week um, about legal tech companies and why they rarely go public. Um, and it stemmed from last week, I spoke to contract life cycle management provider Ironclad when they announced their um, acquisition of PackSafe. And the CEO, he said, like, you know, you can quote me, you know, um, uh, Ironclad will go, um, we will file an IPO. We're in the business of acquiring companies, not being acquired. And I was just kind of like, okay, that's kind of interesting. Just looking into the history of legal tech, you don't see too many companies that's taken that step. And I reached out to some um, legal tech investors and they were kind of mentioning why, you know, you'll see successful legal tech companies, they're, they're successful companies, but they don't necessarily have the cross-appealing usage across like outside of law, um, legal departments and they're not like a department company-wide um, tool. And that's why when investors, when they're looking for that multi-billion dollar um, investment, they don't see it in legal tech because it's not necessarily usable outside of like just lawyers using it. So that was interesting, but, and I thought it was um, a little bit interesting that the companies that have said publicly that they are interested in going public, they have been like, um, their legal tech companies in the CLM contract life cycle management uh, sector. And it's interesting given because like we have seen consolidation in that part of legal tech and also like investments. And they were just kind of saying like, you know, um, I think Jason from Ironclad, he said like, I think we will get to a point where there'll be at least one legal tech company throughout the um, entire industry that is public. But contracts is kind of like, if you can contracts um, are impacted not just by like the legal department, but you're also HR, sales, financing, people want to know what's in those contracts. So I think that's why they were saying like that might be the industry that might, you might see a little bit more um, uh, of those types of companies going public. So I thought it was interesting. And of course, the time will tell like, will those companies actually go public? Will they be successful? Like there's been some companies that did do it and just to kind of see like how the industry is maturing and if it'll get to that level where you'll see them exchange on like um, stock exchanges. I think it's really interesting. We, we talked a little bit about this last week too, uh, but I've also, uh, like you said, they're all in the CLM. I've, I've also talked to the CEOs of Agileoft and Evisort who also both say, watch for us to go public within the next five years, if, if not sooner. Uh, and it is interesting that it's all happening in the CLM space. Uh, you you kind of wonder, 
if there's a if there's a bubble in that in that space, what's going to happen? Because there's just so much money going into that space, so many different startups in that space, uh, and and not just startups. I mean, Agileoft is a you know a 30 year old company that's you know just took its first major investment ever uh, over the past year. Um, so uh, it it's it's a hot market. Um, what happens with it? I don't know. Yeah, I always think about when DocuSign, like a company, I think people that don't even follow legal tech, they've heard of DocuSign and them buying still like a contract analytics provider. That makes me kind of think like, yeah, maybe there is like a, a market, you know, outside of just like the legal for when it comes to like contracts, if you can cover, if you can get the whole entire cycle, even now to like signing it and everything. So there is maybe like an opportunity for it. Will it be like that billion dollar company? I don't know, but it seems like it, it does kind of like, have a demand like in companies and even like for consumers, individuals that aren't part of it. Right. Well, Ironclad does have a valuation in excess of a billion, right? I forget what they uh, yeah. what they reported, but something something up there. I, that makes me wonder with the, a story you're going to talk about, Bob, about the VC investments in tech justice spaces. If that if you know, that you can find ways to partner and scale or bring together these universes of technologies um, to, to create these larger offerings in, in a public setting, if that would, if that is more attractive to investors. Yeah, I don't know. I think that, you know, I think what's attractive to investors is, is kind of like what Victoria's talking about, which is the, the fact that it can go, the fact that it's not just a legal product per se, although, you know, that it, that it spans different sections of, of, of the corporation. I mean, it's just, it's, I, it makes some of these people I talk to work for some of these CLM companies say they're, you know, they're, they're pitching their sales as much to the people in the sales department as they are uh, in the legal department. And sometimes the sales department is their inroad into the legal department to, to get a bigger deal with, with a company. So uh, I, I think that's a, a major force there. Our thoughts on that. Uh, since you brought it up, I might as well talk about the uh, that that story you mentioned. I, I just thought it was really interesting that there was uh, this report that came out this week uh, called "Justice Tech for All: uh, How Technology Can Ethically Disrupt the U.S. Justice System." But it was really focused on this this sector called justice tech. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, some of you listening here probably know like uh, the company Paladin, which is a, a pro bono platform. Uh, for law firms that that expressly positions itself as a justice tech company, um, but this did a really this report was really interesting because it really kind of mapped out the landscape of what's going on in justice tech, uh, and it's you know it's a lot broader than legal tech. I, I mean it's all focused on well how did they define it their their definition. Uh, is justice tech refers to technology enabled innovation that supports people affected by the US criminal and civil justice system and their families and the organizations that serve them from initial interception by law enforcement to incarceration to reentry. I don't really like that definition because it makes it sound very criminal focused and it's not just criminal law. It's clearly civil and, and criminal. Uh, and, and that's what's interesting about the report is the tech isn't just legal tech, it's healthcare tech, it's financial tech, it's uh, communications tech, 
uh, what else do they, future of work tech. I mean, a, a lot of it is focused on the criminal justice system and that a lot of it is focused on helping people who have been in the criminal justice system get back into work or you know, get their finan financial affairs in order or, or whatever else. Uh, but it's also tech as simple as things like this one e-court date, which basically helps courts message with people through text messaging and to, to make sure they show up for their court hearing on time and that sort of thing. Uh, but what was interesting about this report is it was compiled by a, a, a couple of VC firms that, that focus on this uh, sector. And it was really written, addressed to other VC firms to encourage them to invest in this sector. Uh, something I don't think it, it it addressed very explicitly is, uh, you know, what what the potential uh, um, uh, payout is for, for VC firms with this kind of tech. A lot of these companies do tend to be uh, smaller, but then again, some of them are, are getting to be pretty significant and have had some pretty significant investments. So that was really interesting. And that's what I was thinking too, because of the way that they um, identified these areas with financial future of work and government tech. It reminds me a lot of the civic um, justice uh, projects that are happening, these marriages of civic tech and justice tech, uh, but th those are all nonprofit. And this is really focused on for-profit capabilities in this space. And so that's, a, that's really interesting. And that's why I, I thought of it when, when Victoria was talking, because, it, you know, these are things like business formation. These are, you know, really getting into some of the automated uh, processes that can be more attractive to, you know, larger um, groups across, across the country that may, that may be able to scale um, to something that would be more attractive in a for-profit company. Right, and they make the point that there are there is foundation support, there is institutional support for nonprofits that are developing tech in this area to some extent. Although even those institutions, from my experience, aren't putting a lot of money into tech as much as into direct services. Uh, but uh, nobody's really not nobody. There's not a lot of people putting money into the for-profit uh, side of this sector. Any other brilliant observations about that? All right, uh, Molly, since you were just uh, just talking, then I tag you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't really ha I don't have too much. I've been my head has been uh, in the clouds in San Diego on vacation and um, and head down on a on another project I've been working on. So I haven't been focused enough in this space lately. Um, you can tell I did us all about the project you've been working. On. <laughs> I did uh, get to uh, um, read over the Florida bars best practices for remote remote proceedings, and it's you know it's a lot of common sense. I I just I laughed out loud when I read one of on the on the first page. One of the main points is to make sure you mute yourself when you're not speaking. Um, it starts off with dressing appropriately, which is I thought that was that's something that I'm hoping to write about soon <laughs> about uh, uh, court etiquette via zoom so uh so i thought that was interesting they didn't get really down into the weeds with that one except to to say that uh the people running the proceedings and and bringing in clients are responsible for making sure all of their their associates uh are appropriately attired um but it was it you know it really it talks through it get, gets into really detailed specifics including how much time how much notice you should give people you know making sure everybody's aware 
uh, that the um, that it that the pro the proceeding is going to be video and you know. I thought it was an, it, it was nicely done, um, comprehensive piece. If anybody's looking for a guide, yeah, a little a little more comprehensive than the one Nikki talked about last week uh, with the New York judges, where it was like five sentences basically. That similar said, you know, dress appropriately, and that was about it. I will say I, I had some meeting with some state legislators today via Zoom, so that's why I'm wearing a collared shirt as opposed to a T-shirt. That was my my nod to getting dressed up. <laughs> Uh, I, mean, I mean, with lawyers, you always got to put them on notice, right? Because otherwise I'll be like, well, you didn't tell me that I couldn't wear a tank top and, you know. Uh, and I, have I, sex I under my desk. Yeah, oh, I, I mean, I mean there, there's no law saying I didn't, oh. you, I, you can't, <laughs> you know, I can't do that. So how would I have known, right? Right. Yeah, they, um, I will say, um, not commenting on the sex under desk one, uh, but um, which which lost in the last round of our I'm bracket. amazed. I and it, oh, I mean, it lost to the, Peruvian video, which is a little bit more explicit and oh, during okay. a okay. during an insane situation. I mean, that was that was a tough matchup. Four or five, though. I, I did a great job seeding this tournament, is all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but you know, on that dressing up thing, I I actually wonder if this is a kind of like a hidden headline that uh, we should focus on, which is what about these lawyers who may I, I mean litigators, they still show up in um in Zoom hearings and stuff, but some of these corporate folks may never have had to dress up at all in their careers. And I'll tell you, I had to put on a suit for the first time a couple of days ago, and um, it does not fit the way that it did a year and a half ago. <laughs> um, thankfully, in the good way, um, my pants continually tried to fall off of me the whole time. So I had to, I basically had to tie a burlap rope around myself <laughs> like Huck Finn or something. Uh, but it was um, it was brutal, uh, and I wonder whether it's that good way or the bad way. How many people are on the back end of this pandemic are going to need their suits redone? <laughs> there is a story for an investigative yeah. journalist to go up. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start. Yeah, that's a good thing. I'm gonna start calling some tailors and seeing like if they've seen an upswing in uh, in appointments lately. Yeah. I mean, is a, is a related story, though, whether dress codes change even for professionals kind of forever. Um, you know, I, I mentioned on here before I do I'm an arbitrator and I do Zoom arbitrations and I, I've been noticing, you know, attorneys in those arbitrations who would never come to a live hearing without a suit on if it's a man or, you know, a woman dressed professionally in some way. Um, they tend to not wear those. Uh, I mean, uh, they might, you know, might just have an open collared shirt on uh, without a tie or anything else. Um, it, it's much more relaxed, it seems like. And uh, I don't know, does that forever change dress codes? Or do we, once we start doing things physically again, do we all start trying to remember how to tie a tie again? I, don't know. I think in court, at least, it's, they're still yeah. going to have the same standards in court. But whether it's going to be casual Friday every day in law firms, I mean, or just when you know you're going to have clients come in, I, I, you know, is that when you have to dress up, or are they going to require it all the time because people see you when you walk around the office, even if you're not seeing a client? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going I've to be seen, a little less, a little looser. I've seen over the years just a, a difference in dress code. For example, in depositions, when when I was a younger lawyer, and you took a deposition or defended it or went you wore a suit and tie. And, uh, you know, before the pandemic hit, most of the depositions I would go to in-person depositions, 
very few people wore ties. Uh, sometimes the witness would, if it was being videoed and he was, he would be of the type of witness that you would expect to wear a tie, which is not many anymore, but most of the lawyers, uh, you know, would have a collared shirt on most of the time. It kind of looked like Bob, you know, sort of business casual, as you would, you, you would say. And so it's, you know, that that's evolved over time. And, uh, and I think kind of a good way to tell you the truth. Yeah. Of course, I can also remember the day where everybody smoked in depositions. That's so. <laughs> also a very that good thing. That is still possible. You, and now it is possible to smoke in your office and smoke during your depositions and smoke during court. So, and, and drink. And today it's, and now it's going to be possible to smoke in New York. <laughs> That's right. And following that closely. <laughs> It's, I'm so surprised it even passed, which is a whole different issue, but hard to believe that New York got it together and did that. Weren't you surprised? Wait, you, you're, no? surpri you're surprised it passed? No, no, no. New York was always going to pass it. It was always going to get through the assembly in the Senate. It was just going to die on Cuomo's desk. But somehow, for some reason, I don't know what it is. I haven't really been following the news. Cuomo feels <laughs> like having something that distracts attention <laughs> is important. I've not heard anything about him, though, so maybe I'm missing it. So well, you think maybe, that's, maybe what, that's people, what made people, it happen? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, right. it, and it, this isn't even the first time that's he's good, done that. I like that. that. He's opened up uh, in over the course of several years. He's chosen to do something whenever the heat gets a little too close on him. Like when he closed the Moorhead Commission, uh, a few or what is that what it is? I'm now blanking. Is that more Moreland? I whatever that commission about ethics that ended up sending his chief of staff or whatever to prison. Uh, when he tried to shut that down because it was get the heat was getting a little too close, he immediately like did some crazy thing that he'd been holding up for years. So everyone would talk about how great he was. No, he's he's cagey like that. He knows how to Strategic. manipulate the media. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's that that's a typical like political like response, right? I mean, you know, Trump was the master at it. And then, you know, just, just this week with, with, with the Florida, with the Florida congressman, it's just like, it just so happened to leak that day that he was considering leaving Congress early to go take a job at Newsmax. Like, well, now we know why he's considering mm. leaving Congress early. All right. Uh, Steve, what do you got this week? Yeah. Well, I uh, had listened to a podcast by um, Marlene Gabauer and Greg Lambert, the Geek and Review podcast, which is my second favorite. Always really enjoy listening to, and was fortunate enough to be on every now and then. But but they interviewed a woman who was uh, the head of a practice group um, in a law firm, and uh, the interesting part about it was this woman did not have a JD; she was a a business person. Um, and, and it struck me, they sort of laid out the, the uh, responsibilities of practice group heads and for that matter, the, the chairman of a firm. I mean, it, it's develop an overall strategy, advance business development, make sure the work is distributed equitably, find lawyers that are having trouble and come up with a way to help them. Um, when I was a practice group head, I also had to, to monitor the financial performance of the practice group and come up with budgets um, and, and at the same time, practice law. And it's kind of therein lies the rub. Um, first, you know, most of those, if not all of those, except for practicing law are not uh, things that our lawyers are particularly qualified to do. Um, business people, on the other hand, 
typically are. Um, what we are qualified to do is, is practice law, right? And so you, you start putting lawyers and it's, it's often lawyers with very big books of business in, in a lot of law firms, let's face it, that's who, who carries the cloud and becomes a practice group leader or firm chair. So you, you take these, these very qualified lawyers, uh, force them into a role where now they're gonna have to try to do something they're really not trained to do very well. Uh, and then tell them at the same time, keep practicing law. That, I mean, that's kind of what I was told. So, so now you've got this kind of choice, you know, do you spend your time working on firm matters, trying to do something you don't really know what to do, how to do, or do you spend most of your time doing what you really know how to do, which is practicing law and develop business and that sort of thing. And in many cases, the answer becomes obvious. You know, most of these leaders spend more time and energy practicing law and less time managing the law firm. Or conversely, they decide we'll spend more time trying to do what we don't know how to do, which is managing a law firm, managing a very robust business and less time doing what I was once doing, which was very qualified to do. And as a result, you take out of circulation, you know, a key revenue generating person uh, to, to try to cram them into this role of, of business management. It, None of which makes a whole lot of sense until you, you know, until you start thinking about, well, what's the business model for most law firms? And it is a partnership with no non-lawyer ownership. Um, and so, you know, management, lawyers in a law firm are typically like, well, you know, you may be the chief executive officer, but you know, I'm the person that's got everything at risk. I mean, it's my partnership, it's my money, it's my debt. And as one of my partners who I will not name used to say, you know, when he was hit with, with some bureaucratic uh, requirements, he would say, I'm not going to do that. I, I pay your salary for God's sake. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of perpetuates itself into this sort of uh, lackluster management of so many law firms. And it, uh, it just struck me as I was, as I was thinking through those qualifications they're all of a practice group head or, or a firm chair or even somebody running a, a legal department in a, in a corporation. I mean, they're, they're, they're business responsibilities and business obligations and things that business people know how to do. And yet we sort of keep plugging along, you know, eh, we can do, we're lawyers, we can do this. That's, that, that business stuff's easy, right? We, we can handle that. So I thought it was just kind of a, an interesting sort of phenomenon that at least in this one firm, they had decided to, to make a business person uh, responsible for a practice group and seemed to be, seemed to be working pretty well. Is there a parallel there to the uh, rise of legal ops and corporate legal departments? I mean, oh, yeah. I, I think one of the reasons legal ops has, yeah, has has become such a, a powerful force in in the legal world is that they are business people. They understand uh, processes and workflows, and 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 they are able to bring those to a legal department. Uh, and uh, you know, they're not they don't have to be lawyers. Maybe some of them are, and probably some of them are. But uh, you know, it, it's it's all about bringing business methods to the running of the legal department. And yeah, and it you know, I postulated in the in the in the post that. You know, a, a business person could run and run very successfully a, a legal department uh, and where the lawyers would report to the business person because many of the things that, that legal departments do 
process management, human relationships, uh, determining, you know, the best fit for various types of pieces of, of, of work are things that could be better done by a business person. And get if that were to occur, it gets you out of this sort of, um, I want to say maybe good old boy network where so many, so many general counsel come from law firms and tend to adopt that as models. And in fact, there was an article that just a few minutes ago, I was reading that, you know, the many of the of the corporations are return are hiring fewer law firms, but the ones that they're hiring are the ones that they have long term relationships with, and from a cost, you know, analysis, they that may not be the best law firms for them to be hiring, right? Because because they're very expensive and they're very well known, and you're you're sort of overlawyering many of the problems unless they're. Bet the company problems. So, you know, I've often thought what would happen if you had a, a a business person running a law firm who would look at something like that and say, "I'm not sure our our mix and who we're using are these these very expensive law firms are is quite right. It doesn't make even doesn't make business sense, right? So, right. You know, maybe someday it'll be interesting. Yeah, someone who understands law firms running a law firm, no, uh, understands business running a law firm. No, 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 no. That's that's crazy talk. Come on now. No, no, no. They, 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 because what would a lawyer running a law firm do other than complain that they don't, they didn't go to law school to do this job? You know, that's, 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 that's 90% of their conversation. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but you make a great point. Now, what I actually thought was interesting about that, well, all of it, but the thing that I zeroed in on was your point about transitioning back clients transitioning back to law firms that they have long-term relationships with, which is a different narrative than we've been telling right. five years ago. Like I remember writing a bunch of stories about five years ago about the professionalization of clients and how they were walking away from the long-term relationship and increasingly taking a, a real hard look at, hey, this isn't bet the company. I'm going to hire a I'm going to hire this smaller firm that is cheaper and more efficient and the jobs and, and beef up my own in-house and take a lot of this stuff in-house and therefore not do that. And that was really the theme a few years ago, but you know, yeah, things have changed to, a little bit. Uh, conditions kind of, are different and yeah, maybe they're kind of running home to uh, the old, the the old ways. Way. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It, I was surprised to see that oh, too. Okay. And it, again, it, it, it makes yeah. Except in a bet the company case, it, it just doesn't make economic sense. You know, I mean, you you don't go out and, and you know buy Cadillacs to you know deliver you know goods in or something. I don't. It's just you know, but that's the well, legal question. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I, I cut. The, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, did I cut out at any point there? No. Okay, good. Well, you all cut out audio, and I was like, oh, did something break? But apparently, it wasn't that. Anyway. No. Can I, I just want to, yeah. before we move on from, from this topic, I, I, I do think it's interesting that, so we're starting to see law schools address this in, on the technology, technologist front. Uh, so with, uh, with, with courses and tracks, not quite tracks, but close to tracks on um, developing skills in, in legal technology um, through law school. And I'm, I, I haven't seen that same development of business skills other than through clinics. Um, and I'm wondering if undergrad and law schools and business schools are putting their heads together to develop these pathways for professionals for 
for law firms. It would it makes sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that it's really happening. I'm seeing lots of really expensive LLMs and other advanced trainings. Um, like you're paying for a law degree to not make as much as a lawyer working in a law firm. Um, but I'm not seeing, you know, the, the law schools really rethink how these um, specialties in law practice or in running a, biz, a legal business um, might play out. It's interesting, Molly. I have a, a nephew and he went to Penn and he got a, a combined MBA and computer engineering degree to designed to do just what you've been describing. And now he works for Google and, you know, probably makes more money than all of us put together. But in any event, uh, it, I, I thought that was interesting. That was, you know, 10, 15 years ago that that was being done. And like you, I don't, yeah. I've not heard of that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of sad in a way because a lot of the lawyers that really need that kind of business training end up working for small firms or, or going solo and they're just thrown out there. Many of them don't even understand financial statements and, and those sorts of things. And it's, it's a, it's a real shame that, that most of the lawyers that come out of law schools end up in those kinds of jobs as opposed to big law, um, which has you know enough problems in that arena of its own, but it's, we're really depriving them of, of a way to sustain themselves in a lot of ways. Yeah. There are, I mean, there are a couple of law schools that offer joint JD MBA degrees, but, but they're not a track to run a law firm. It's, it's a different kind of a track. I was going to say Enron had big law lawyers. So, so even they don't understand how financial statements are written sometimes. Yeah. yeah well, um, or maybe they really did. <laughs> And, and, our, just, and our next issue, we're actually like kind of looking at that issue of like whether or not, you know, because obviously, I mean, most big firms, they have like some kind of like CFO or some kind of person there, I know, maybe maybe with a law degree, maybe, but, but, but usually on salary, who's there to like, you know, with the, run the financials of, of a firm and whatnot. And obviously, you know, with a lot of small firms and solos, the attitude is, well, I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to hire a CFO or what's the point, you know, this, this is my practice. I need to do it myself. And, you know, ultimately it's like, okay, well, do you really want to um, spend all that time trying to learn how to you know, how to run a business and probably you know takes takes time away from your practice and maybe even you know detract from it and and, and maybe you know you don't you don't do it as well as you as as a professional could or do you want to just bite the bullet and hire a CFO and so it, I mean I'm mean, obviously like you know like more and more small firms are starting to do it and I think it, it's probably worthwhile to to at least at least look at it and obviously you know you know, like, we'll, you know, like, look at, look at what's happening in Utah and Arizona. I mean, hopefully at some point, you know, we'll see some results of like these, 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 uh, you know, new, these new structures and, 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 and how they, how they, you know, how, how they can kind of, uh, you know, uh, bridge that gap, so to speak. Yeah. I think that would make a huge difference because, you know, now you've, if, if you could have non-lawyer ownership and business people in that role, then, you know, that everybody comes to the table sort of equal. We're, we're all in this together as opposed to lawyers over here whose money is all at stake and business people over here whose all they have at stake is their salary, which isn't, you know, not insignificant, but still it's a little different than being responsible for profits and revenues and, and debt. So yeah, I, for my uh, podcast is coming out on Monday. I interviewed uh, Andrew Ballheimer, who is the former global managing partner of Allen and Overy, who just joined the board of Factor, the uh, ALSP Factor, the managed services firm Factor. 
Uh, and, you know, a lot of people kind of wrote about that move as perhaps symbolizing this sort of bridge between traditional law practice and, you know, new so-called new law. Uh, but, but he talked a lot about kind of the, the symbiotic relationship, perhaps, between ALSPs and traditional law firms where, where they can work together to serve the client, kind of in the way, Steve, that you were talking about, where they come to the law firm for the high end, the thinking stuff, the, the, the really skilled stuff. But then the execution of it, you work with a, a managed services firm to do it. Like a, a great example was Alan and Overy and, and Factor worked together on this LIBOR remediation project. So, you know, the Alan and Overy attorneys kind of did, you know, <laughs> did the big level thinking about what needed to be done there. But when it came down to the sort of rote mechanical execution of that, it's not just rote and mechanical, but to the more commoditized execution of that, then you work with a managed services firm to kind of carry it all out and, and the clients benefit because they get that high level legal skill, but then they don't also pay an arm and a leg to a big firm to do all the execution of it. Yeah, and, and, and I Victoria, think Victoria, did you have a... something to add? I noticed you had- oh, sorry. It feels like it was a little, oh, like 15, 20 minutes ago, but just kind of <laughs> I, like what Joe and Steve were saying about kind of, um, you know, these corporations, corporate legal departments say like, hey, we want more efficiency technology. And I was speaking to a service um, earlier this week and he said, yeah, these corporate legal departments make those announcements, but then in a lot of corporate legal departments, they um, provide like autonomy and like individual in-house lawyers can make those decisions on who actually works on certain matters. And a lot of times when you look at who they're hiring, it's not necessarily that they're efficient or they're not necessarily following like diversity announcement that the corporation makes. And it's just kind of like, oh, we had this previous relationship with them. And that kind of trickles down into if law firms see that, hey, I don't really need to be efficient. I just need to have this relationship with the client. And that gets me the work. And it's kind of kind of like, okay, we see these corporations, they're saying they want more efficiency, but when law firms are actually getting kind of creative and using technology, if they're not being rewarded by it, by actually, um, you know, getting that work, then you'll kind of see like, you won't see as much like um, evolution in law firms and corporate legal departments because the GCs aren't demanding of their in-house lawyers like, hey, no, I want you to look at this other firm that's pitching, that's trying to get our work um, more closely, looking at them more closely. Good point. Good point. All right. Anybody else have anything else they want to talk about? I do. <laughs> um, did what we I not thought do was yours? I thought we did yours. No. <laughs> what I thought was interesting, no worries. What I thought was interesting um, that caught my eye this week was an ABA journal story, and I will paste that in the chat. Um, and what it, and I really liked it because it covers this intersection of um, everyone getting vaccinated and uh, remote testi uh, testifying remotely in virtual practice of law. And so essentially it was about a, um, a class action and the uh, defense counsel, which was a school, was trying to um, allow its witnesses to testify remotely. And the plaintiff's counsel said, listen, everyone's getting vaccinated, they need to, I would like the judge to inquire as to whether they're vaccinated. And if they are, then what is it that they're necessarily uh, worried about in terms of coming in and testifying in person? Because um, testifying in person provides a more, um, it's just a better way to cross-examine someone and elicit testimony. And I thought it was really interesting because it's sort of, it's where this like 
point in time where people are getting vaccinated uh, and some people for strategic reasons are gonna prefer remote testimony and are probably gonna try to use that as a um, wedge in a case. And plaintiff's counsel is having none of it and saying, listen, if they're vaccinated, they're gonna have to explain what they're actually nervous about because the vaccines are so effective. And otherwise they have to come and testify in person. I just thought it was a real interesting sort of point in time that this issue is being used and it's a strategic um, decision. So I just wanted to, I posted in the chat and I thought it was uh, really interesting and wanted to highlight that. All the more reason not to get your uh, vaccination card laminated, Steve. <laughs> yeah, you know, Nikki, it's an interesting point because, um, you know, in addition to sort of the safety sort of concerns about coming to testify, there's the disruption and cost concerns. You know, um, if you have an expert that's across the country, you know, having that expert come and testify in Louisville, Kentucky could be phenomenally expensive because you've got to travel to and from. And then you've got this sort of, you never know exactly when the, when the expert's going to go on the stand, right? I mean, it could be 10 o'clock, it could be two o'clock, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week. And, and you know, that, that's one piece of it. And then in, in smaller cases, you have, um, you know, even parties, but certainly witnesses that, you know, it, 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 they'd be much more willing to testify if they could do it in a more convenient sort of, sort of way. So it's kind of like, how do you balance this sort of need to get the testimony in with convenience and, and all of that? I, I tend to think, you know, the, the in-person interaction deal is maybe a little bit overblown uh, in a lot of ways. And I think there's some, you know, there's some research that would maybe support some of that, but, um, but certainly the inconvenience of having to, an expense of having to testify and appear alive is pretty significant all when you think about it all the way around. Right. Yeah, I wonder if some people would just say that's like private health information and I'm willing to testify, just not go into the courtroom or to the deposition where we're having it like, you know, like that's personal information, you know, I know what Nikki, you're talking about, like maybe it could be like strategy or something like that, but I could see maybe some people saying, well, that's personal health information. Like I'm willing to testify, you know, I'll just do it remotely or something like that. So I can see some people just having a little bit of pushback of like, you know, I'm still willing to do it, but you know, I'm not willing to give up like my health status or vaccination status to just um, go in person to do it. Kind of you know, and there's another piece of this I, had, I just thought of, you know, it's it, it, in, in civil litigation, you know, there's a great reluctance uh, by courts to call chief executive officers to testify. I mean, the CEO of uh, Google has more important things to do than come and testify, mainly because of the disruption. But, but I wonder now that it's easier to testify, whether we'll see some sort of loosening of the judicial reluctance to make those kinds of people appear um, before juries or appear before judges because of the, it's much more convenient now. That, that'll be an interesting fallout, I think, will we'll come from all this. Yeah. I think it's, a, I, I think Victoria, you raised a really interesting issue and I wonder if they would, it'd be like an in limine uh, issue. Like they'd have to tell the judge in limine because the argument was that they're uncomfortable testifying in person for safety reasons. And so they're just sort of calling their bluff and saying, listen, if you're vaccinated, how worried can you be? But then I also um, 
but I, I you that's a good point in terms of not wanting to publicize uh, your health status. And then Steve raised the point that I hadn't really given too much thought to, but in terms of, um, but that I think is really interesting as well in terms of strategy from a cost perspective. Um, you know, the defense attorneys are usually billing by the hour and all the costs are being passed on either to the insurance company or to the client. And then plaintiffs don't have to worry quite, uh, they have to worry because they're fronting the cost. But at the end of the day, hopefully they're going to recover a lot of that. But it, there may be a little bit of a back and forth there in terms of trying to make it more expensive to defend the case because usually the case gets to a certain point um, in terms of how expensive it is to defend it and it will cause the defense to reconsider negotiating um, a settlement. And so I wonder if there was a little bit of that in play as well um, in terms of trying to get all 15 witnesses to come and testify in person and the expense that's associated with that, uh, as you'd mentioned. So um, I, I just think it's interesting though that to see the sort of intersection of the vaccine and virtual testimony as we're starting to phase out of the necessity for virtual testimony and then how they're using this sort of strategically, presumably within this litigation. Um, so uh, Nikki, do you think that that's a kind of a dangerous ploy, if, especially if um, in the next case it works for you the other way to um, have your, your folks come in remote? Um, <laughs> So, oh, and you're question. already on you're already on record opposing that uh, vehemently. Well, the class action you're going to have to assume. I think that uh, hopefully the like I would think the likelihood that it's going to be in that front of that particular judge in that particular court is not all that likely. But you never. But these days everything is available um, through Pacer and through all the AI analytics software. So I assume that information can be dug up pretty easily compared to the old days when you couldn't didn't know as often. So that's a really good point. I. Uh, I think you're taking a risk when you do that. But then again, you may just be assuming you're going to get to a point where remote testimony is just not a necessity well, a, and it's almost like a luxury. <laughs> I don't know. As a local reporter, I would be very happy to point those out, those hypocrisies out in coverage. Well, hopefully. Uh, see, this is why we just need to get rid of legal technology that makes it so easy for people to find this. The harder it was, the easier it was to defend clients. Legal tech, you're destroying our ability to advocate. Zealously at all times. Information was not public. And yeah, well, I mean, I mean, public information still, at least at the state level, we've had this conversation on this show before. Go back and listen to some of the archives um, about how public <laughs> information still isn't public in certain states, like being able to show up on a Tuesday with a form and triplicate in order to see a public record uh, is not really public. Yep. Uh, all right. Anybody have any quick rants or raves they want to throw out there? We're just about out of time here, but any, anything really piss anybody off or make anybody really happy this week? I'm very pissed off that my DoorDash delivery guy destroyed my mailbox as he dropped off my dinner last night. <laughs> what the heck was in that bag? I don't know. It. <laughs> I don't know, man, but... Uh... <laughs> You know, of course, as a, you know, my legal mind immediately goes to like, you know, independent contractor insurance. How's this going to work? What's DoorDash going to say? <laughs> and so you're just, so we will see. Away. <laughs> yeah. My rant is for those of us on the East Coast, you were alluded to this before we started recording <laughs> the Mother Nature giving us like 75 degree days and then making it snow. It's just kind of cruel and unusual punishment, but. 
we're all probably used to it on the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> I even have the fire going because it's so cold. I I hope this is the last one I have to make the uh, you know until till our fall episodes. Yeah. So there's a chance next week's uh, episode of this show will be a special one. Uh, I don't know if we've all agreed on that yet, or if we've figured out for sure if we can do it. Nikki, you want to fill us in, or you want to? Sure. Um, Bob and I are going to test it ahead of time to make sure it works. But the Monroe County Bar Association, which is my uh, local bar association, is hosting a solo and small firm conference. Uh, it's their fourth annual one, I think, um, Thursday and Friday afternoons next week. And because I was part of the um, planning committee and because I'm <laughs> a freak about avatar conferences, I somehow managed to convince them to try the <laughs> avatar conference for this solo and small firm conference. I don't know how you so, did that. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm trying, I don't know. Um, and I hopefully, hopefully it will be successful. It's a big hurdle to try and get lawyers to create avatars and run around in a virtual environment. But my hope is we have a lot of people registered, so we're excited. And my, I would, because there's so much room on this virtual campus, um, my thinking is that we can all, uh, and we've all been invited. I made sure that everybody here was invited in case they're interested in exploring the campus, but we can hold our um, webcast, our weekly roundup um, as avatars in the, um, on the campus. And then what Bob would do is um, share his screen to Zoom and then broadcast, uh, broadcast it so that we would all be speaking as avatars instead of little Zoom squares next week as soon as it can be done. So that's our hope, uh, assuming we'll it can be done. And Bob and I are gonna test it out hopefully earlier next week and early next week and see. So we'll either be here as avatars or as whatever the heck we are now, talking heads. <laughs> uh, and uh, either way, we'll be back next week. I think that does it for today's show. Thanks everybody for listening and watching and participating. See you then. Bye all, have a good weekend. <laughs>